Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. All right, a pleasant afternoon to everybody and good evening wherever you are across the world or even morning. Uh, welcome to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the hosts of the Water Zone. And, uh, you know, Chris, it's getting close to the 27th of November, which happens to be for all the landscapers in the world and all the irrigation people. It's the Irrigation Association's Symposium and Conference this year. Maybe you want to tell everybody about that? Yeah, I'd be happy, man. I just I hope our listeners are ready for this because uh, the IA show it, it is it is indeed the world's largest uh, exhibition that's dedicated to irrigation, right? So as you said, yep. November twenty seventh to yep to December twenty first. Uh, it's called the um, twenty twenty three Irrigation Show and Education Week, uh, and it's in San Antonio, Texas, right? For our listeners, guys, if you haven't signed up yet, do it. Go to irrigationshow.org on the web, and you can sign up and, and get your ticket ahead of time. There's a, just a ton of new events and all that kind of stuff. Plus, it's on the it's uh, it's on the, at the convention center there in San Antonio, which is right next to the uh, the Riverwalk. Um, lots of things to do. Bring your family there. Tons of your irrigation professional colleagues all in one location. It's a it's just a great event. If you aren't already signed up and you do intend to go, I encourage you to do it quickly. Yes, uh, it's people from companies from all over the world. Uh, they're gonna, we're, gonna be, we're gonna be broadcasting live. We're also gonna be giving, a, giving an opportunity for some uh, new companies that have just started out or have started out, but they're looking for partners and stuff like that. They have some really neat technology, so we're gonna, we're gonna speak to some of them, and uh, we're also gonna hear from Natasha Rankin, who's the, uh, the head of the Irrigation Association. So it, it will be a great show. I will also try to get some of the winners. We have There's a contest for best product of the year, and uh, there's some people being recognized uh, for the industry of the super things they've done. So uh, it's going to be a fun field uh, week, and that will be on the 28th. That we'll, I'm sorry, 29th that we'll be doing that. So uh, that will be good. That's on a Thursday. Anyway, uh, let's bring in Miss Chris Austin, the most wonderful Maven's notebook pur- purveyor. And Chris, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? We're doing good. Uh, it's a little uh, cloudy out here in 66 right now out in the uh, Phoenix area. And I know you guys had some rain this week. We have had a drizzle last night for about 10 minutes and enough to dirty up the car. But uh, I don't know how big of storms you guys had. and I, I don't know if it's pushing this way. So uh, what have you heard? Well, we had a little bit of rain last night, uh, and there's a, a, a bit larger storm coming here on the weekend. So uh, we'll see, but it looks like we're kind of have a bit of a start to our wet year here. Um, so we're all kind of hopeful that it will continue. Uh, yep. But it's, of course, way, way, way too earlier to tell. You know, I can't say right now. No. Well, one of the things I know California is worried about is the uh, water storage problems that we have. And I know that there's a, there was a failure to expand Shasta, which upset a bunch of people. But what's what's your view and what do you know about all that? Well, yeah, the uh, Congressman Valadeo <clears throat> was, 
which is uh, he's from the Central Valley, Southern Central Valley, a uh, big farming area. He's authored some legislation uh, in the uh, uh, in Congress that would make it easier for Shasta to qualify for federal funding. He does not he does not uh, say what exactly he did. He just says that this makes it easier to qualify for federal funds if there's anything available. There's been talk about raising Shasta Dam for uh, for a long time. Uh, and it's really kind of problematic, I think, because um, if you do raise the dam, then it's going to further inundate uh, the rivers up there. And there's a, a tribe, of the Winneman Wintu tribe um, on the McLeod River, uh, and they, <clears throat> they've already had their ancestral lands inundated and so this would only just worsen that situation. Plus, they also have a big salmon project going on up there uh, in conjunction with the Department of Fish and Wildlife there on the McLeod River. Uh, so, you know, there would be impacts from that. And I also think that, you know, there's kind of a question as to whether uh, enlarging Shasta Dam is really going to do any good. Uh, actually, last year, Shasta stayed, uh, it trailed all the other reservoirs uh, in terms of filling up. It, it eventually did fill up, but it was one of the slower ones to fill due to the hydrology just of the area. The, that's not where the storms came in. So um, it, it's a real question uh, whether that would be a useful project or not, but also there's this issue that uh, in federal law somewhere, it says that the, the federal government cannot come into a state and unilaterally build a water project without having some state or local agency as a partner. Um, and I, I think this came out of the 1950s and 60s where building water projects was Quite popular uh, with the with the legislators in D.C. and not so popular out on the ground in some areas. So uh, states did not want to have these projects imposed on them. So they have a requirement somewhere in the federal code that says they have to have a local partner. And there, the state of California passed legislation that they would not. Uh, participate in the raising of Shasta Dam, and the only other uh, possibility was Westlands Water District, which is actually, um, as as it was determined after a court case, uh, they tried to be the partner, but then they determined that they too were a state agency, therefore they could not participate. So without a local partner, I don't see how this project could be built unless they change that law. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. One, one other thing, I know they were talking about um, in, in your in your writings that, uh, what is it, the Sykes Reservoir uh, is causing some mixed feelings between the indigenous tribes and fishing groups and conservation uh, organizations. How, how, and, and I guess now they're they're in an uproar about Newsom because of the things that he was doing about it or not doing about it. 
Yeah, uh, Newsom passed a law earlier this year uh, that contained a streamlining process for infrastructure projects where it sort of um, it, it uh, made some conditions uh, to made it harder for groups to sue on the environmental report, the environmental impact report. I can't remember exactly what that change was, but it, it, it made a streamlining process to get uh, so that these projects could get started sooner, and there's probably he probably had the sites reservoir project in mind when he uh, when he signed this legislation. So indeed, they applied for this uh, provision and they got it. So <clears throat> so the environmentalists are now um, not happy about that because it it just kind of makes it harder for them to sue. On the project, and uh, you know, let's let's be real here, folks. This is California water. There will be at least one lawsuit, and you'll probably see multiple lawsuits once they certify or try to get going on this uh, project. So uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, you know, the farmers up here uh, want this project. It's an off-stream reservoir, so. Uh, from an environmental standpoint, at least in terms of, you know, uh, waterways, it's not uh, blocking a river. It's not, uh, re it's not a destructive project uh, to an already existing waterway. It's off stream. And the, uh, the valley where they want to put this reservoir, the people that live there are in favor of building the reservoir. So, there's really no opposition there. <clears throat> and they've kind of lined up all their financing to build this, this dam now. So I would say they're getting pretty close to being ready to go. But yeah, uh, like all like all water projects, it has its opposition. And, you know, folks are worried that... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they're worried that uh, it's going to be, you know, any flows that you're that they're taken out of the river are going to uh, take water away from fish. Um, you know, they're, they're very concerned about, uh, they say that it's not going to get enough water. And I think that there is some question, uh, you know, this reservoir is being built, uh, sort of listening to what the scientists are telling us and that, our, our storms are going to get warmer. They're going to drop water more on the valley floor as rain, not up in the mountains as snow. So hence, you know, a project like raising Shasta Dam to catch snowmelt is not, uh, is not the way to go. This is the way to go is to, you know, find ways to store the water that, that falls on the valley floor. And that's what this project does. Um, how often it will fill, you know, we don't know. I guess we'll have to see how that all works out. Uh, but scientists say that's the direction that we're going. So there are some questions, you know, some uncertainty, but, uh, you know, in spite of the uncertainty, sometimes we still need to move forward. So we'll see what happens. Absolutely. I know Chris Davies got some questions. Chris, go ahead. So I do. 
So, you know, last week we were talking a little bit about that um, proposed California regulation that says this titled Making Conservation the California Way of Life. So, Chris, I'm going to tell you, man, I got, you know, because I managed the chat board, right? So I got several questions about that. We didn't get we didn't get a chance to talk about it very much. That's for sure. Um, and and wish we did. But maybe for the listeners who are tuning in this week that that answered this question. Right. Um, you know, so they asked me what were the you know, what what were the issues? What were the concerns over it? And so I tried to explain to several inquiries that, you know, it's all about this landscape efficiency factor that the that the state is um, is intending to put in, the, in this ordinance. And um the pushback that comes from, uh, you know, contractors and users and and maintenance companies and stuff like that that says rather than use some, you know, California standard that uh, that, that looks at, uh, you know, the concerns over effective precipitation, which is what what the state is using, and versus using like real time data through a smart irrigation controller. Or something like that. I don't know how much you can comment about it, Chris, but I got to tell you, we got a lot of chat about it last week. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't have. I mean, that I, I've been pretty down in the weeds with that, but not really way, way down in the weeds. But I do <laughs> know that, um, you know, the Department of Water Resources has now. Uh, use satellite imagery over every urban area for every water district in the state, believe it or not, and they scoped out the amount of land uh, that, that you know, grassy areas versus hardscape for every property in in uh, the whole state. And, and they want to use this to set a water budget that is based on how much uh, you know, irrigable landscape that you have, and uh, you know, versus your hardscape, uh, and that. So there's the that which they've done for all the properties, and then there's all the issues. Uh, one of the other big issues is, you know, you have a parcel of land, and it's not being irrigated now, but is it going to be irrigated in the future? And how they determine those sort of, uh, you know, air spots around the edges of of this whole landscaping issue. I mean, it's very, very complex. And I think that, uh, well, I almost think, I wouldn't be surprised to see them kind of go back to the drawing board because um, it's based on this landscape efficiency factor and which people say that's kind of a pie in the sky, you know, design aspirational sort of thing and, and not what really happens in the real world. And the biggest issue, too, is it's cost. I mean, it's, it's very costly to implement these regulations. And we're regulating, we're, we're doing all of this to save, you know, how much acre feet of water uh you know it's urban water use is much you know is just a fraction of agricultural water use so you know how much are we really expecting to get out of this for the cost 
Um, and you know, and those, and that's for places like in Southern California, where presumably they can afford them. Out in the Central Valley, it's probably uh, just not even realistic. In some of the disadvantaged communities, they're not going to be able to change over their landscape. They're just going to have to turn them off. Well, isn't know? the state? Yeah. Isn't the state, Chris? Both Chris and Susan, the state looking to drop down to. Uh, within 10, 20 years, 55 gallons per capita per day per person? Well, actually, the yeah. indoor water use is, I think, is they even passed it to be lower than that. But they're, they have a specific standard for indoor water use. Right. Um, and they want to apply that indoor water use standard, you know, so like if you have four people in your house, then you know, they'll they'll calculate that kind of budget uh, for the indoor and then the outdoor, and then that's what, you know, what they're hoping that the, the people that live there are going to do. But, you know, here again, it comes to another issue that the water agencies have, which is like, if the water agency doesn't hit the target within their their district, then the water agency is the one that gets the fine. Um, and these water agencies are saying, you know, we've done all this stuff, you know, uh, landscape conversions, and we, we pay a lot of money, but we cannot make people do this. And so, you know, there's, it's, I think it's going to be very difficult to uh, you know, to get people to comply, I so. I agree, Chris. I mean, you know, the issue that they're talking about here, you know, you got to look at, um, and this has potential cost, of course, like everything does, right? Your earlier comment about, boy, this is going to be a fight, and there's going to be lawsuits and stuff like that, right? I don't know. I don't know if this will go at that far, but all of if all of this becomes, you know, regulatory, right? There's potential costs, and I mean, there's burdens that are going to affect or, or, or disproportionately affect economically disadvantaged com, you know, communities or, or people, individuals. And that's, you know, that's a significant concern, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's like the disadvantaged communities are not in a position to make these what are, what are generally pretty expensive uh, landscape changes. So... You know, it, it just means that they're going to end up turning it off. Well, I don't know what that is. Yeah, me, 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 uh, me neither, but uh, some of our guests are on there. If you can put your mute button on, but that's good. Um, there we go. That sounds like you, Rob. <laughs> I know. From an older broadcast. Um, all right, uh, Chris. What else is percolating to the uh, top of the uh, coffee brewer in your neck of the woods? Well, we have a let's see. We had a very interesting sort of story uh, coming out of San Diego, where uh, you know San Diego is is going to uh, uh, do a deal with Metropolitan. Uh, to buy water from them, and this has this wraps into the Colorado River uh, negotiations that are going on right now. 
So uh, it, it's kind of a complicated deal, but a bit ironic because San Diego worked so hard to get out from under Metropolitan thumb, but uh, but now they're willingly going back under Metropolitan thumb. So and and San Diego had uh, some water districts that came to the realization that they could get water cheaper. Uh, from uh, a metropolitan water district member agency, uh, not not the San Diego where they had been buying from it, and you know, ironically, it's it's be, being delivered to them through the same infrastructure. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it's it's where it's where they send their payment for the water is the one thing that will change. So you know. Very complicated water infrastructure we have down here in Southern California. Yeah, ain't it though? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's we also we were talking before the show started, all three of us about Floodmar. That was an interesting name. Yes, but yeah, this this refers to the practice of. Uh, taking water when it's really coming down from rivers that are flowing hard and letting it onto farmland and to let it sink into the aquifer. And they've been studying this for a number of years, and uh, it, it works. That's the one thing that they know. Uh, and I think that farmers were a little slow to take it up, uh, but... You know, with the hard hand of the uh, groundwater management coming down on them, uh, and with all of the uh, water that uh, storms that we had last year, uh, they got a lot more enthusiastic about it awfully quick. And so, uh, you know, they're taking the steps now, setting up, making sure that they can, uh, you know. If it if we get more opportunities this year, that they can do the same. Well, don't they worry about? I, I know you also had a, you also had an article you were talking about the wastewater discharge that's filled with potential toxins from from other places. Are, are we are we not worried about water that, that with the rivers and things like that that may be polluted and, and they're going to put them on property that they grow crops on? Is that kind of that that, that um, might have you know, I don't think that's really an issue because the the times when they are uh, taking this water from the river, the river is flowing very, very hard. Um, if there's any pollutants in the river, they're probably diluted to minute amounts. I don't really hear anyone express that kind of concern. Um, the more they're more concerned because. When you get these big flushes of water, they also come with a lot of sediment, a lot of dirt floating around in the water. When that can clog, clog up systems somewhat, so there is some concern about that part. Uh, but contaminants really don't seem to be an issue for for this part. And you know, there was some concern from NGOs that maybe it, you know, all this recharge water would push contaminant plumes towards uh, disadvantaged communities and people that depend on it for drinking water. But I don't really think that's happened. I think, you know, it, it seems to be very safe. And there's actually been a lot of cases where it actually has improved water quality. 
for uh, you know communities in the area around these recharge ponds. Go, uh, Chris. I'm sorry, I, I jumped in when it's still your turn to get some questions in. No, I'm good. I think uh, I think we're probably looking at. I don't have to check in the clock, but we're down darn close to the bottom of the hour. Well, I got a quickie then. Tell us about the invasion of the 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 mud. Uh, what do they call it? It was a oh, real the, funny the tiny mud snail. Mud snail, yeah. Oh, yeah. These New Zealand mud snails have been out. They're kind of like the quagga mussels. They're sort of uh, moving around, getting established in all these uh, all these systems. If you're a fisherman or you're a boater, you really need to clean and dry your equipment after every use, especially when you're changing water bodies. Uh, the main thing is is the dry part. Um, and when you have these uh, recreational boats, I, I under, it's my understanding that it's kind of hard sometimes to get uh, all these crevices and, and spots dry, but they really do need to be dry. And, and there's a whole cleaning procedure that you can easily find online. But it's really, really important because it only takes one uh, to for these things to establish. Well, is this? I, I've never heard of them before. Chris Davy, have you? Have you heard them or encountered them? Or yeah, coagula mu mussels. Yeah. So you know, as a as a boater, kayaker, whenever I go from uh, from one lake to the other, or the ocean to a lake, or vice versa, every time you check in somewhere to go on a body of water in California, you get a California state boat inspection. So very familiar with the process and and the issues that uh, these little these little critters. Uh, can uh, can impact our waterways with. Wow, didn't know that. Oh, I learned something new on the show. That's great. Well, anyway, Chris, it's uh, time for our uh, commercial break. We do appreciate you coming on this week, and as you always do every week. And uh, so, for our listeners, if you really want to get the the real deep into what's happening in water. Go to mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber. You can also become a sponsor. It's a great way to get information daily every single day and there's more than she puts out again i keep saying it i don't know how many hours a day chris that you put into this but i got it it's got to be like 36 hours in a day this uh, the amount of data that you put out every single morning is unbelievable to us and uh, we really appreciate it keeps us, keeps us up on our toes and to know what's happening in the world of water so thank you very much chris we will see you and talk to you next week all right good evening everyone have a great good week night. chris all right, we're going to take a little commercial break, and we'll be back with a featured guest. That's going to be a very interesting conversation, and uh, he's all the way on the East Coast. So we want to bring him on as quickly as possible because we don't want him to miss his bedtime. We're only joking about that. So stick around. We'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. 
AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Five nine four eight six eight nine. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. Welcome back to the second half of this Waterstone Radio Show program. I'm your host, Chris Davey, along with the all-knowing and ever-present Rob Starr. Listen, we got a great guest this afternoon. I mean, we're going to talk to you about uh, a lifelong de- dedication pretty much to one facility, uh, the guest that we've got coming on. And in addition to the guest, guys, we've got a third co-host on tonight's show. He's going to have a short stint on the show. But he's on the line, so I'm going to introduce them both to you right away. And first, I'm going to introduce our guest. His name is Jeff Graydon, and Jeff is the Senior Associate Director of Athletics, and he's in charge of all the campus and planning and capital projects and all kinds of stuff. I'm going to highlight a little bit about him. He is uh, a, uh, just looking about the dates here, it's like, you know, 45, 48 years uh, at, at this facility. He started at Princeton in 19... 19- 76. I was a wee kid at the time. He was a contractor. He became an employee of Princeton in 1990, and he works at that university in a variety of roles, including uh, campus planning and a bunch of other stuff. We're going to let Jeff tell us more about his role in there. But right now, currently, his responsibilities uh, are are the uh, you know, pretty much the facilities: two gyms, uh, a rink there for for hockey. Uh, a lake for rowing, several swimming pools, seven synthetic fields, and pro- approximately you know forty or so acres uh, of natural gr- uh, grass. So let me welcome Jeff to the show first. Welcome to the Water Zone, Jeff. How are you? 
I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. I, I listened to a portion of the previous uh, part of the program, and I was enthralled by it, uh, especially oh, talking awesome. about Southern California, water districts, regulations, water reuse. Um, so I, I have a lot of interest in that, and I also own a home in Southern California in um, uh, San Juan Capistrano, so I'm a little bit familiar with the water situation in California. Right. Well, we have a feature uh, on the show. It's called California Water News, and that was uh, Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook. Uh, she comes on on a regular basis, Jeff, and uh, fills us and all our listeners in on the latest in California uh, water news. So we're going to see if we can get the the best, uh, get our listeners get filled in on what happens at Princeton through you. But first, first of all, I'm going to say, you know, in my in my day job at Toro and Rob's job at Toro as well, I'm going to tell you, man, I'm so sorry I missed you because you were at Toro earlier this year, weren't you? I was. I came to Riverside um, to talk about a, a lot of things, but primarily about irrigation and, and how, you know, we, we were moving to the DXI controller, which is a two-wire, and it has a whole lot of wonderful options. And, and I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the, the ease of things that I thought that should be in this software that would make it easier. Um, user-friendly, and we talked about things like predictive weather forecasting. Um, we talked about things like the, the master valve, where, where it will shut down if there's a leak between certain, you know, volumes of water over, over a given period. It is, it, it's an amazing tool, and fortunately at Princeton, we, you know, we, we care about water conservation and water use, and once we put together a package, um, we were funded probably within a week to be able to purchase, I think we purchased six of these. So now we own seven of these devices, and they're, they're our standard for um, water management on campus. Well, let's see if we can get a little more information on that, because as I, as I teased at the, at the introduction to the second segment here, we've got a, uh, a, a, a long... Uh, along with, rather, myself uh, and Rob, we've got a third guest co-host. His name is Mike Edmiston. Mike is a, a Toro uh, employee, and he's the district manager for Toro back in the Northeast and a, and, a, and uh, probably manages uh, the account for uh, Princeton. So, And I know he wants to talk to you and ask a question. So, Mike Edmiston, welcome to the Water Zone to you, buddy. Wow, what an introduction. That's a, That's amazing. Uh, a third co-host, huh? Well, hey guys, I, I got I got to tell you, Chris, you surprised me. You got my people on. I was born in Plainfield and lived in, and lived in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. <laughs> <I> <laughs> so know we got the, get the Jersey boys on. <laughs> that, listen, that's a nice part of Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in the real North Jersey. Oh, right, Taylor Ham, Taylor Ham. Uh, oh, well, so. Well, Not this, seriously. Well, hey, uh, appreciate you. Throw something at uh, throw something at us, buddy. Go ahead. Well, you know, uh, I got I got to ask this question. There's a lot of uh, legislation wrapped around um, pressure regulating spray bodies it's happening around the country, and I'm curious to know if there's legislation being thought about or maybe out there regarding synthetic uh, synthetic turf heads. 
you know, I know Jeff. Jeff, I met you at the uh, Synthetic Turf Conference in D.C. a year or so ago. Uh, great conversation. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, traction, you know, in, in that arena. And I'm wondering if there's any legislation forthcoming regarding, you know, the cooling and the cleaning of those type of uh, fields that you're aware of. I have not seen that. The, the, the issue with synthetic turf is, is the misconceptions of synthetic turf. Things like, um, you know, treating synthetic turf with biocides to control things like MRSA. Uh, most of that, frankly, is a scam. Um, it, it's unnecessary. The sun, ultraviolet light, does a very good job on it. So the the, the big issues right now, and synthetic turf has gone through a whole evolution. Um, it was The first deal was put in 1964 in Rhode Island. It was a short pile of nylon. And in the 1990s, it became a long polyethylene fiber with crumb rubber infill, silicon, um, a styrene butadiene rubber um, infill. And the trend now is moving towards more fiber, less infill, and has been moving away from the, the rubber infills, even though they're very inexpensive, um, because there's, there's a lot of conversation, nothing, nothing scientific, but conversation that, oh, it causes cancer. So I, I will tell you at Princeton, um, fortunately, we have the ability to be able to pay for an alternate infill called TPE. TPE, and you're in California, passes Prop 65 without a warning label. How's that for good? There's no warning label on that. We're using that now instead of crumb rubber, but um, turf does not need to be washed. The only turf that you water is field hockey, which is a short pile, typically nylon. Um, nylon is hydrophilic. It does absorb a little bit of water, but it in the Olympics in 1980, I think it was, it was hot as Hades in L.A., and the field was watered, and all of a sudden these side benefits were realized. Um, no more rug burn, no more static. Uh, I don't know if you'll remember when you were a kid, you rode a bicycle, and you rode through puddles, um, and, and you'd get a rooster tail up the back of your tire. Well, you, if you look at a ball in high, at, with a high-speed camera, you see the same rooster tail. It, field hockey is a game of control, and it makes the ball stick to the turf. Um, because of the water, there's a, this, this adhesion because of the water. Um, so the only field we do water is um, field hockey. And, and we do have a problem when they're overwatered where you'll get algae growth, and then you have to control that. So, yeah, you, you may clean the field for that, but generally, you know, washing a field is not a good idea. The the other thing with... When they, uh, just, Jeff, I was going to say, what about the cooling uh, issues? I know that there are uh, field hockey, soccer, and some, and some constraints or requirements from FIFA, organizations like that, for, uh, for uh, field surface temperature. Right, so... When you water a field, you get the evaporative um, cooling of water when it's on the field. The, the problem is it quickly recovers 
and and it then just becomes a hot, wet field with no real benefit after a very short period. So the newer infills, not the crumb rubber, the black crumb rubber, but the newer infills, the TPE and some of the cork or wooden products um, uh, or zeolite are lighter in color. There's a, there's a green colored sand they use today. Uh, we have a field we just put in the hottest it got on our field this summer. We monitor, monitor 24 hours a day and log the data. The hottest it got last summer was 102 degrees in our heat wave in full sun. So it wasn't so bad. Good to hear. Uh, go ahead. No, I was, I was curious. For, you know, I read a lot of articles about uh, synthetic turf. Oh, uh, especially back in the east, they found a lot of fields that were uh, were, were giving uh, bad results to, to children with uh, giving them cancer and such like that. But but beyond that, the play is different on those fields. They're much faster. They're harder. Um, do you see, or does Princeton see more injuries on those type fields than a typical turf, standard turf would be? No, we don't. We only have, we, we're in the Northeast. We get snow in the winter. Our spring sports start um, on February 1. It's the official practice day. So you'll see that lacrosse team out there on February 1, whether it's snowing or not. So and we plow our fields. So the only fields that we have that are natural grass or some recreational fields, and they're shut down from mid-November until return from spring break. So we, we, lose, we lose that period. Um, baseball is converting to synthetic. Lacrosse is synthetic. Field hockey is synthetic. Football is synthetic. The only recent one we've constructed has been a soccer field um, that is a high-performance sand-based field with natural grass. But we, we have not seen more, more injuries, but we maintain our fields, natural and synthetic. That's where the injuries come in, is when they're not properly. The other injury factor is shoes. Um, there's, a, there's a poster in every NFL locker room, it was developed by a professor at University of Tennessee named John Sorokin. Um, and it, it's a poster telling people, these are the approved shoes. And athletes sometimes decide they know better than the poster. And you find a lot of people injured because they're not wearing the right shoe on the turf. Makes sense. Yeah, got it. Mike Edmiston, do you have another question for uh, for Jeff, buddy? Yeah, sure, absolutely. The other um, concern, I don't know if concern is the right word, but the other uh, topic that came up a lot at the, the uh, uh, D.C. Uh, Synthetic Turf Conference was residential application of synthetic turf. Uh, especially in hot climates, they would uh, replace uh, natural turf with, with uh, synthetic turf because you didn't need irrigation. And the same concerns with the turf getting, or the art of, uh, synthetic turf getting hot, you know, for the, the, the pets, their paws would get burned, the kids couldn't play on it. Are you hearing more about uh, residential applications with uh, synthetic turf having those uh, similar issues uh, and concerns? And I'm just curious to hear your, your take on, on that. 
Yeah, the answer is yes. We hear more about it because, you know, they, they, communications are so much better today. So if you look at a place like Las Vegas, um, there are documented cases where this synthetic turf has actually melted because of reflected heat of a building. So do, do I think that's a wonderful idea for, you know, large play areas? Probably not. Uh, residential use. I, you know, my son, who lives in Southern California, had it in his old home. His new home has natural grass. Natural grass naturally cools. There, there are there's places for both and benefits that each one has that are different than the other. I get it. So you're probably aware, Jeff, that in Southern California, there's an ordinance on the books right now. It isn't approved. It's not. Uh, it hasn't gone through but a, a, a B, uh, Assembly Bill 1572, but it is a bill that essentially prohibits the use of potable water for irrigation and cooling of synthetic turf. Um, so, in other words, if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't see feet, right, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be irrigated. Um, I think that that's probably got a good chance of, uh, of going through here in the next couple of years or so. I don't, I don't know if it's prevalent throughout the U.S., but it's certainly here it is in the uh, in the state of California, especially here in Southern California, where uh, where I believe you're soon going to be. So, you have a comment on that at all, Jeff? Well, this is the first I've heard of it, but I, I would not encourage people to irrigate synthetic turf for cooling or for any reason. Other than the only one I would that makes sense is field hockey, because that it is a better game, it's a better control game. But in residential, there is no reason to do it. You know, there's four dollar rebates in California on synthetic turf. You know, also for certain desert plants, um, that makes sense to me to put it in for that reason. You're not watering, you're not fertilizing. But if you start watering it, I would agree it seems pretty foolish to water. Can can, yeah. can we switch for Go one ahead. minute about synthetic turf? Because I I just taught a program to uh, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. It's it, it's worth spending two or three minutes on. Um, so I start out by I, I always ask, and I, I'll ask you folks: Do you know? Do you know what an acre inch is? One twelfth of an acre foot. Yes. <laughs> Good way to put it. Um, an acre inch is one inch of water over one acre, and an acre, acre is 43,560 square foot. So to convert that to gallons, an acre inch is 27,154 gallons, a, a typical round number 100,000 square foot soccer field, a full-size NCAA soccer field or lacrosse field is approximately two and a quarter acres. So you get one inch of rain over that. You know, you've got, you know, 60-some thousand gallons of water. Now, where does that water go? What happens to it afterwards? You know, it, we have developed a, a, a system, a, a plan, something that works, that's documented. I'd, I'd love to share the data with you. It's live. It's on the web. You can actually see it when it rains. Um, we are collecting every drop of that, and we are doing 100% groundwater recharge, um, and we can handle up to 11 inches of rain in 24 hours 
which is a hundred year storm for us. And every drop of that water is going back into the ground. Now the question came up a few minutes ago about you know flooding farmers' fields and are, are you risking contamination? Well, we're actually monitoring that water and testing that water. Um, it's not runoff, it's only precipitation on a field, and we're using an a EPA um, total anal analytical list, target compound list, and so far we have found none detected with gas chromatography. So we've done something here in New Jersey that when I get out to California, I'm going to be retiring in uh, July of this year. When I get out there, I'm hopeful that I can convince regulators and people in California that groundwater recharge is a viable way to get water back into the ground. Well, absolutely. Let me, let me, let me go back to a, 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 a conversation I was going to have with you at the beginning of the show, because you have a very unique uh, background. What drew you to the industry you're in today? Because you, you, you certainly have passion for it. And that's what it sounds like. And what, what made you yeah. go towards your career? So, so I, I live in a very tiny town. I, I grew up here. My kids had some of the same teachers as I had here. And it's a little town called Granbury, New Jersey. And I, it's an agricultural community. Um, I, I, went off to, I went off to the University of New Hampshire to agricultural school. And when I came out of the University of New Hampshire, I, I started my own business. Um, I, and I, I started with, um, my degrees are entomology and agronomy or plant science. And I started with uh, pest control and field maintenance, uh, chemical applications on fields. And I, I started going, you know, to short courses up at Rutgers about fields. They were mostly Henry and Dyke. Uh, he was a professor who taught most of them about sand-based fields um, and, and just I just became, you know, very passionate about athletics. So one of my clients, I didn't do res much residential work I did. I, I worked for the Department of Defense, Princeton, uh, RCA, a lot of these larger companies maintaining some of their areas. And in 1990, you know, uh, Princeton you know, said, geez, Jeff, wouldn't you like to be able to get a vacation, come work for us? So I, I did, but I still didn't take vacation. Um, it, it, you know, in, in, if you work in athletics, it's a lifestyle. It's it's very often eighty hours a week. Um, it, but but there's a lot of rewards in it. You're either cut out for it or you're not. But um, my role at Princeton started primarily with the fields, and I have a mechanical aptitude. So uh, when we had problems with the rink, I started taking care of that, and, and I do all of the you know, manage the construction. Um, right now, Princeton is in a $5 billion construction phase. Um, we're building right now a brand new tennis center, a racket center, you know, it's tennis and squash, a fitness center, and we're doing a new baseball field, a new softball field. We just finished a soccer. We just finished a practice soccer. Renovated the track. We're doing... I, I don't know how many new tennis courts. There's probably 16 tennis courts in, in total. So it, it, I just, you know, I, 
I, I really enjoy construction. I really enjoy data management, record keeping. You know, those things matter. Uh, but my passion actually is stormwater management. That's my real passion at Princeton right now. Hmm. Um, what do you do with this? We're, we're trying to treat rainwater as a commodity, not as a waste. Makes sense. So, so theoretically, when you retire, you're really not going to retire. You're just retiring from Princeton and coming out to California and work some more. Yes, that's the plan. <laughs> That's that's good. No, I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that passion in your voice and, and uh, for you to do something like that. I think that's that's pretty awesome. Yep, I've, I've had a I've had a wonderful career in a great place. Um, I've been able to be an expert witness all over the country on failed fields. I've been able to help people with irrigation systems, drainage systems, even electrical systems. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's Princeton has this sort of motto that says you know. In, in, I don't remember the exact words, but in, in the service of all nations, something like that, that, you know, Princeton likes it. We're able to go out and help people. Oh, sure. So in, in your tenure at Princeton, did you ever, did you ever see Dr. House? I have, I don't know who that is. No. That was, that was a television show they used to have. Uh, it was called House. <laughs> and it was, it was based out of Princeton, their medical school. You're dating oh, yourself. You don't have a medical school. Princeton is is prime undergraduate institution. Well, that was that was the, that was the show. No, I, I know that was that was the show they created out of that. So just it was kind of a joke. Sorry. I'll, yeah, keep, my day, I'll, I'll keep my day job instead. <laughs> well, we're running up against the uh, uh, NBC News Hour that we gotta we gotta relinquish our control over back to them. Otherwise, they come and turn us off anyway. But, um, Jeff, it was excellent having you come on again. We'd love, when you come out to California, we'd love to talk to you some more and, and keep, keep up on your progress on what you're doing out here. That would be awesome. Yeah. Planning on coming to Riverside and uh, uh, convincing with um, Alvin uh, Frisbee. He's one of your... Yeah. Yeah. In there. Alvin. I love your research center where, you know, they... You, you spray big guns and measure water. We do the same thing here, but we have the wind outside. But it's a pretty uh, impressive facility. It's a pleasure to see you for the first. We appreciate that. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to Mike Edmondson as well for being out there. Have a great uh, guys. Rob, take it to the end. Well, thank, thank you, everybody. Appreciate. And Jeff, hopefully we catch up soon. Great. Thank you. Remember, everybody, the thing that Chris and I tell you every single week is keep our planet blue. Planet if, you, if you like green, you got to have blue. Good night. We'll talk to you next week. You have a great weekend. Stay dry. KCAA Loma Linda.